And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection of faith and reason. I'm Doug Keck. I'm the gatekeeper. Father is our own Mr. Universe. He's the star of the program. We'll see him shortly. But your questions are really important to us, so email them to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. And check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, magiscenter.com, incrediblecatholic.com, and purposefuluniverse.com. And that's just this week. Wait till next week. Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on the EW10 On Demand page and on our EW10 YouTube channel. If you miss any portion of the program, just like to see it again. And while talking about our On Demand page, be sure to check out Mother Angelica Answering the Call. Um, this is an audio program that features the best live show questions from viewers over the years that Mother Answers. It's also on our uh, Podcast Central page as well. Check that out. So there's a lot happening on EW10.com. And our topic today is vanity from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. You know, vanity and Satan, very much connected, available through our EW10 religious catalog. You should have that book already because the new book is out, so you gotta get ready to pick that one up for Christmas. Book of the month for November, Women Made New Reflections on Adversity, Transformation, and Healing by our friend Kristalina Everett, of course. And speaking of good friends, we turn to Father Spitzer to lead us in prayer, if you would, Father. Absolutely, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the many blessings you give us, especially the blessing of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. I ask you to send this day your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Very good, Father. Well, the last time we spoke, we thought there might be a, a let's, let's call it a pro-life wave, but apparently the, uh, we got an ebb tide instead. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was, uh, a lot of people were talking about a red wave, and I think several people pointed out, including Regis Martin in an article uh, in Crisis Magazine or on their website, that basically, whether we like it or not, abortion is our red wave. That's the trouble. Instead of getting a, a Republican yeah. pro-life red wave, we ended up with people voting basically to keep abortion legal uh, or to expand it in, in many places around the country, including Michigan, and I guess whether we like it or not, there's a lot more people out there than we'd like to believe who think abortion's perfectly fine. Yeah, I think uh, also there was a misunderstanding uh, from the very start about what this um, uh, decision on the part of the Supreme Court regarding Roe v. Wade actually meant. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in the United States, uh, thanks to the help of <clears throat> a lot of propaganda <clears throat> that was put across by how many of the uh, pro-abortion people uh, really thought that this meant they would not be allowed to get a, uh, an abortion in their state, mm -hmm. uh, rather than uh, the decision was going to be handed back to the states. So they saw it as an all-or-nothing thing, and I think a lot of people uh, decided on the basis of that misinformation uh, to go ahead and vote for uh, somebody uh, they thought might uh, protect, quote-unquote, um, uh, abortion in mm -hmm. in their state, so I think uh, I think that might have been part of the problem as well. 
So um, in any case, um, uh, that's where we are, and um, I think there right. is, <laughs> shows we have a lot of education we're going to have to do in this nation uh, to show why this is a, a most terrible decision. Uh, and and uh, um, I mean, uh, I think the Supreme Court's decision is great because it reverses yeah. the previous one, but that decision was a terrible decision. And I think one of the things that, that needs to be done um, truly is to uh, compare this uh, to the Dred Scott decision and the slavery issue. And uh, the reason is, is right. because it's so stark. It's always hard to change something that has been accepted in social custom. And now the United States finds itself in a very similar position uh, to the time um, after Dred Scott. Mm -hmm. And that is, we've got a division in the country. At, at that time, of course, it was North and South. Now it's sort of like uh, states that are uh, more or less leaning um, uh, pro-life and states that are leaning against pro-life. And so we can see that it really is dividing the country. But um, the, the heartening news is, um, you know, that the, the strong likelihood that uh, the Republicans, of course, will uh, take the House of Representatives, many of whom are pro-life, mm -hmm. but um, I'm not advocating, uh, you know, the Republicans, but those those particular candidates right. Uh, right. are pro-life candidates, and I think it is a, uh, at least heartening that they were electable, mm -hmm. and so that means that pro-life candidates are electable. So uh, I'm thinking that um, that might be, um, uh, you know, at least some avenue um, uh, that, that we have uh, to look forward to in the future. Right, at least kind of slowing down uh, this and, and, and trying to get, yeah. uh, like you said, true information out there. Uh, it also seems, uh, mm -hmm. from what we're seeing, at that, that uh, when you talk about Gen Z and a millennial heavy vote in that way, uh, and and yeah, some people yeah. talk about the idea of not only the whole rights issue, but that you're dealing many times with a lot of single women who are now yeah. without, let's say, a, a normal family, which would have been the case 50 years ago, where there would have been a husband and yeah. the two working together. And so you have many times uh, a single woman or a single woman, maybe parent, who to some degree has become yeah. more and more reliant on the state. Yep, I think all of that is uh, also the case. The changing family structure mm -hmm. uh, has also swung the pro-life uh, uh, vote uh, in the direction of uh, pro-abortion. And mm -hmm. I, um, I'd have to say that it's happened on many levels of destabilization of the family, of course, is always a, a destabilization. Mm -hmm of um, the life-giving dimension of the family itself. And that would have been utterly predictable. It was predicted, right. actually, by um, you know, several different institutes that this would be an outgrowth of it. So, um, but it's, it's, you know, this is one mm. of these reciprocal causation uh, things because uh, really a true strong family uh, not only reinforces pro-life, but a pro-life position also reinforces strong families. So it is a mm. sort of reciprocal right. causation, just like we know that religion definitely supports marriage mm. and that a good marriage also supports religion. Uh, but the practice of religion. So, um, and that's a, another genuine reciprocal thing. And uh, not surprising God made us this way, not surprising to see reciprocal causation uh, right I mean, along the lines of God's uh, plan for us. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I think, you know, uh, this is to be expected. I think the change uh, with respect to the abortion um, a decision that was uh, just uh, 
uh, brought down by the uh, Supreme Court. I think it's going to be a very gradual change. I've always said right. it'll be gradual because people have become accustomed to something else. Look at how long it took for right. our country to uh, even accommodate itself right. uh, to um, the Emancipation Proclamation. Even in the North, it was horribly unpopular. And sure. certainly, you know, without the victories of the Civil War, uh, maybe Lincoln might not have made it, uh, even with that great mm. cause in the North, because, you know, again, people have become habituated. Is it worth a war, et cetera, et cetera? Right. But eventually, our country moved to a point where now we look back on it and go, that was abhorrent, that right. horrible practice of slavery. Now, of course, you say, well, that's 160 years later. You know, of course, we would expect something like this to happen. Uh, but, you know, I think it probably took nigh on 70 to 80 years right. before it really occurred to the nation as a whole that slavery was just an impossible well, thing to maintain, and it was horribly immoral, and it was tearing our nation apart. Well, in a lot of ways, as when you talk about Dred Scott and that decision, in a lot of ways, uh, especially people in the North who, where there wasn't necessarily slavery, yeah. and effectively were pro-choice yeah. in many ways about slavery. Yeah. Uh, which was yeah, they wouldn't yeah. own a slave, exactly. they didn't think it was a good idea, but they weren't going to stop anybody who thought it was okay. Yep, that's, or they didn't think it was worth right. trying to stop uh, people from thinking that it was okay. Right. And so, uh, you, know, it, you know, it didn't matter what was really happening to black people is the main thing. What really mattered is, well, what was the, conven the convenience level or inconvenience level to white people mm -hmm. is how the decision was being framed. Right. And I have a, you know, there's a real parallel here because really a lot of people don't think about what's happening to that little baby, mm -hmm. uh, especially, you know, even, you know, the imagination doesn't have to go far in the third trimester abortion, you know, where you're dealing with a perfectly viable baby, you know, and you're, you're saying uh, uh, you're, you're going to kill him and dismember him. Him, uh, in, in order to uh, to um, um, uh, accommodate somebody's choice, you're mm -hmm. willing to abide this. You know, I mean, you know, the imagination. You know, you don't have to be, you know, scientific, or you don't have to mm -hmm. have a moral platform. I mean, just the imagination alone just knows that this is abhorrent. You know, to, to sit there and dismember a perfectly viable child in the womb. Right. And, you know, in order to accommodate, quote unquote someone's choice. Right. Well, now, I mean, it's it's the same thing as back in the pro-slavery days. You know, people were not looking at the f fate of black people. They didn't care about their intrinsic dignity. They cared about you know, what can be tolerated by white people, what was needed uh, by white people, and that, it's the same thing today, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, oftentimes I look at, you know, when um, we, we now deal with this and we can see people who are at, at one time terribly, uh, uh, you know, minorities who are terribly discriminated against, and now they're pro-choice. I mean, it's like, you've got to be a student of history. Right. Uh, and I think if we teach that history, we'll see more and more how abhorrent this whole uh, practice is. And right. I think we're going to look back on this in 50 years and go, what were we thinking? Mm -hmm. But right now, it's still in our blood. And we're still going to protect it. And, you know, we're still going to have, you know, that whole post-war mm -hmm. kind of setting where people are just still surreptitiously, 
you know, trying to, to bring this terrible mm -hmm. practice out of the bag. But, you know, I think in a way <clears throat> Lincoln's assassination sealed the fate uh, of slavery. And I think uh, people at that point wanted to make the Emancipation Proclamation work mm -hmm. because of, you know, he was a martyr right. uh, in the many country. Ways. Right, absolutely. Um, and in many ways, and I think that's, we, you know, uh, God forbid that that should ever happen again or have to happen again. So let's hope we can come to our senses without terrible travesties well, like well, that. Well, it's interesting because you, you talk about, you know, in a sense of uh, people who are oppressed. A lot of times you're, you're talking about situations where people were determined to be not worthy of life, so to speak, whether they because they yeah, had oh disabilities yeah. or they were in a minority and so there was the eugenics aspect. And I thought that was recently interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I did a book interview and a, a priest, Father Schneider, was on a couple of our programs. Yeah. And he has what used to be called Asperger's syndrome, you know, a high-end aspect yeah, mm -hmm. of autism. I thought it oh, yeah. was interesting because I mentioned that to him. He says, well, we don't use that phrase anymore. And I thought that was kind of interesting. But then it turns out that recently uh, they've discovered some of the material from Hans Asperger, who was the original German doctor who had, uh, you know, yeah. defined this. And though he was not apparently yeah. a direct member of the Nazi party, he was clearly involved with what you would have to say is a eugenics view of of these people and these disabled people, which is apparently why they're no longer using his name to describe the syndrome. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah I didn't know that, but yeah. uh, <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. Uh, certainly, <clears throat> a lot of times when you know diseases are identified by people who are wanting to help that group mm -hmm. of people, uh, it turns out that uh, it becomes another platform for eugenics. Right. And I think we see the same thing with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Dr. Um, 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 uh, um, oh, I just forgot his name right off the top of my head, uh, the French doctor uh, right. who had discovered the, the, uh, the gene um, for Down syndrome. But he right. certainly did not want a persecution um, you know, against uh, people with Down syndrome, he, he, he wanted to help them. And it turns out, of course, that even in France, uh, it was used right. um, uh, as a, as a platform for I'm trying to remember. euthanizing. Was that Le Lejeune. 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 Yeah, right. it was Lejeune. Yeah. I wasn't sure, but uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of things like that, there's another article. Uh, this is uh, from the. Uh, I think it's our Catholic News Agency. It's a story, at least based on a report we had. Former trans kid Chloe Cole sues doctors for medical malpractice. Well, you know, we knew this yeah. was coming, right? Outspoken 18-year-old raising right. awareness about the dangers of gender transitions on children is suing the doctors to perform the procedures when she was a minor. Unfortunately, unless you get people yeah. in the pocketbook, nobody pays attention, right? She goes on to say, oh, yeah. these butchers have gone unquestioned and unchallenged for too long, she told Catholic News Agency the other night. She said, my goal in this lawsuit is to set a precedent that will change the landscape for these barbaric processes and to create a pathway for other detransitioners to seek justice. Uh, and she described herself as a former trans kid. And I think we're starting to see more and more of this yeah. uh, coming forward. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether they were there before and they weren't getting attention, or the fact is that we're, we're now reaching a point where, as you've said before, these things take a period of time when people start to realize that this is not really a good idea. 
Well, that's right. And I think uh, um, Great Britain is about five years ahead of us, right? right, right. So they uh, have been um, uh, already reversing themselves in official policy. So now I think in Great Britain, the official watchword is no longer aggressively support, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gender support programs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're no longer doing it. In fact, they've reversed themselves and are now in a very cautious sort of watch and wait stand um, rather than um, mm -hmm. aggressively pushing any kind of quote-unquote gender support or gender transition program, which they had been doing even more aggressively for a while right, absolutely. than the United States. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, they've gone all the way back. I think with Chloe's suit here, I think you're probably going mm -hmm. to see uh, very much, as you already put it, right. uh, the pocketbook is going to get hit because there's a lot of detransitioners uh, who are out there, and mm -hmm. if this, the, the door opens up, that if uh, they had actually pushed this program uh, to a pre-adolescent child, and then even if they got the surgery after adolescence, mm -hmm. because they were pushing it and giving hormone treatments, uh, so-called gender-affirming, uh, gender transition-affirming treatment uh, to the person and be, uh, to the child beforehand, uh, they have definitely grounds for a lawsuit. And that's what happened, I think, with Chloe, that the hormones had already begun, that there was already, you know, mm -hmm. a, 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 you know, a push before adolescence so that when the time came and, uh, you know, they were ready to do it, kaboom, right. uh, you know, uh, the, the transition was there you know, when she was uh, 15 or 16 years old. So, right. of course, uh, as I said, normally it takes, uh, you know, uh, you know, about seven uh, years after the surgery, all of a sudden becomes apparent, right? right? Yike, I've made a mistake. Then the buyer's regret comes in, right? And then, of course, the hatred of the new uh, identity comes in, and it adds itself to the uh, anxieties right. that were felt by the person before the transition, the reason they thought they needed a transition, they thought it was a sexual identity problem, and then, of course, it turns out not to be, and they already have done this terrible, irreversible destruction to their bodies mm -hmm. uh, in the meantime. I think you put all those anxieties together, and that's why the suicide levels go up by 20 times. Like I think it's 1.6 mm -hmm. percent, um, you know, cro normally across the United States uh, for suicides. And then you look, you know, with a 20 times increase, you know, I mean, we're, we're basically talking about a 36 mm -hmm. percent suicide rate in that population by comparison to 1.6 percent of the general population. Something is wrong. Something's not right. <clears throat> And of right, course, right. you're. Go yeah. Absolutely. And when you're on the brink of suicide, a lawsuit is a much better alternative frequently. <clears throat> and so I'm hoping that mm. this, maybe these lawsuits will be the alternative uh, to, um, you know, suicidal uh, contemplation right. or even suicides right. themselves. And, and even if initially it has the effect of uh, sort of like with, in the UK, chilling, you know, kind of this kind yeah. of surgery where people step back and say, okay, well, we got to you know, put some brakes on this to protect some other people who might be getting fast-tracked uh, in, in this kind yeah. of surgery uh, to have that slowed down, that, that yeah. would be helpful, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's a fast-tracking without uh, any question at all. Right. And I think uh, people are uh, 
um, you know, it's it's scary how fast-tracked it is and how much money right. there is and how much these doctors are pulling the parents uh, into supporting these kinds of terrible treatments, you know, you know gender-affirming treatments. You know, and gender-affirming just means give hormones early treatments, so you're going to get the check in the mail a lot earlier. And uh, it's just inexcusable. Right. It's medically unethical. It's amazing, uh, too. I think it's terrible. You're thinking about it now. Yeah. You think about, you know, if you study World War II and, and World War II Germany, and, you know, to some degree, you were so surprised at how quickly the medical societies were co-opted by the Nazi regime and its approach and, and you see almost the same kind of thing how quickly they jump onto these things oh yeah i i think when medicine loses its uh, central sense of compassion mm -hmm. and by the way most doctors that i know have not most right, doctors got into the business because they really really were compassionate people really did want to heal people and help people i mean that was their real central purpose mm -hmm. but when people get into the medical profession to get you better but if you can't get better you gotta go <laughs> and there's no love of the person no compassion for the person you know my job is to expedite your physical healing you didn't cooperate now you gotta go right. now there are those utilitarians who have come into the profession uh, some of them came in for money but most of them you know have come in also with you know, uh, you know, an overriding thought about, you know, how they're going to make the world a little bit better off mm -hmm. by their profession. But like I said, uh, they're, they're not looking at the whole human person. They're not looking at the heart. They're right. looking at this person's physical well-being uh, in a very mechanistic way. And if it didn't work, uh, they get disappointed themselves. It's almost a matter of hurt pride, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you got to go. You know, you're making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right, right. right. A, lot of, a lot of vanity in there. Speaking of uh, our topic, mm -hmm. another story I thought was interesting before we get to some questions here, and I can't pronounce the cardinal's name from... Uh, Utrecht, uh, Cardinal Wim yeah. Uh but I thought it was interesting. He yeah. met with uh, uh, Cardinal Kevin Farrell, the prefect of the Cassidy for Lady Faith and Life, Family and Life, and he had mm -hmm. asked, he said a papal, he, he would requesting that there be some sort of document, whether it's cyclical or not, coming out of the Vatican of the Pope warning against gender theory. The request was made in meetings with yeah. Vatican officials. He said, I've asked if you would not be good for the Pope to issue an encyclical on gender thinking, the Cardinal said. Gender theory is being pushed in all kinds of organizations, and we as a church have not said much about it. Yeah, no, I. Uh, that's why I wrote that book, The Moral right. Wisdom of the Catholic Church. I mean, uh, I put it in no uncertain terms that... Uh, that uh, you know, and, and with respect to you know, gender um, affirming therapy, I mean, this got to stop. Mm -hmm. it, that's just a code word to get, to get people on hormones or uh, to get these children on hormones early, and and so I, I think we've got to stop it. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think it's medically unethical. As I said, you know, when you're dealing with a 1.6 percent uh, normal suicide rate in the country, going to 36 percent in that particular population after you know just a few years after surgery, hey, something is terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. And that fact is, it's you know, you're promoting a therapy that has absolutely no medical evidence that there's anything behind it or that it works. You're promoting a therapy where you know. 
that the suicide rate is going to go up after a few years to a 20 times increase in the suicide rate. You're, you're promoting a therapy where you know that the person involved mm -hmm. is going to truncate the treatment of anxiety, a treatment that would really work for them, and giving them a false panacea, a false right. treatment for, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the problem, and then pretending like this is really going to work for them as you gender affirm them right into this new category of suicides. I mean, what is medically ethical about this practice? There's nothing medical about it. There's nothing ethical about it. And there's certainly nothing medically ethical about it. It's just terrible in every way it's got to stop. And one of the things that, you know, when you're out there promoting, as many politicians are, promoting that there's really something behind, you know, a man being trapped in a woman's body, a woman being trapped in a man's body, that this is like some real physical disorder. It's just not there. There's no evidence whatsoever, genetically or otherwise, that there is such a, a phenomenon. Yes, there are some anxiety levels that can allow a child to think because of those anxieties, maybe that come from self-hatred, that, that from physical or sexual abuse as a young child, or maybe that comes from you know terrible anxieties in the household and projecting uh, the mother's anxiety to himself or whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. et cetera, or anxieties concerned with uh, latent homosexual feelings and, they, and they, 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 they hate their own sexuality, something of these natures. Mm -hmm. You put all these anxieties together, but you know, the child says, well, you know, I just need a different gender. I, I need a, you know, I feel like I'm a, 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 a man trapped in a woman's body. But the point is, they're not. Mm -hmm. and, and the medical community, by proffering this myth, is not helping anything at all. They're making a lot of money off of it, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not helping anything. It's not curing that child's anxieties. And it, yes, it, it'll give them a temporary cure for about you know three, four, five years. They'll feel just fine until all of a sudden it's going to occur to them, hey, I'm getting a recurrence of all those anxieties. Now I've really, you know, messed up my body mm. completely and permanently. Oh, now what am I going to do now? Buyer's regret sets in, and we've got the case of Chloe, where, you know, um, she's basically saying, hey, I wanted to detransition, but now, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm stuck with what happened to me, but I, I was, it was aggressively pushed on me. And I think, as I said, gender-affirm therapy is a code word for get them started on the hormones mm. early, and I think anything like that right. is a terrible thing. Thing indeed, it's an aggressive push on a child who cannot possibly make, uh, you know, a coherent decision. Uh, that very partially developed frontal lobe, where all the, the the judgment decisions are coming from. They don't have the information necessary to know what's going to happen to them in the future, et cetera, et cetera. And they can't process that kind of information. It just, right. you know, you need some help from somebody who's a professional to explain it to them in a way a child can hear it. What you don't need is an aggressive push from an authority figure like a doctor that says the thing that's really going to cure you is just transition yourself, get on the hormones right now, and you'll see that you're going to feel better in a flash. <laughs> yeah, right. you'll feel better, but then you're going to feel worse. Absolutely. And, um, but I, he's got his check. He's, he's happy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> one, one quick question before we go to break, probably. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, I, I really appreciate... The, the live Eucharistic Adoration shown daily on EWTM. We thank everybody for that and for our great yeah. team who makes that available. I'm homebound that I miss going to Holy Hour. Can one obtain graces by participating in adoration on television? Thank you so much. EWTM is very special to me, Judy. 
Well, yeah, Judy, absolutely. I mean, the Lord knows you, you can't get there, but of course, you know, uh, it, it's not going to be exactly the same as being in the presence of our Lord in a chapel with the quiet there and and uh, and uh, you know the ability to uh, to participate with other people in mm -hmm. the in the in the adoration. However, mm -hmm. uh, definitely you can get graces from it because, of course, the grace is the connection with the Lord, your belief in the Holy Eucharist, and you are adoring Him. He's really there. You're just seeing uh, him uh, mm. over the airwaves, but seeing him, mm. you are, because, of course, that's really the Lord that you are adoring. So absolutely, you can get graces, uh, no question about it. In fact, all those um, little devotions you have for your Eucharistic adoration, you just pull those right out of your prayer book or wherever you're looking at them, and you pray those along uh, during um, the adoration on television. It'll be the same graces as if you were absolute as if you were there absolutely no doubt about it right and since uh, we only got about a minute before we go to break uh, so I'm gonna wait on the next question and give you time on that so tell us in the next 45 seconds about your new book that we did the <laughs> interview on that's now out oh yeah Oh, yeah. Well, it just came out from Ignatius Press. It's called The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, A Defense of Her Controversial Moral Teachings. And um, in that book, we have a, uh, uh, you know, I, I use all secular surveys, right? So I, my, my intention was not to put together something that was uh, uh, essentially, you know, Catholic surveys, because I wanted to avoid somebody saying, aha, you're just, you know, uh, using uh, your own uh, religious bias here. Mm -hmm. And so I just took these secular surveys from the archives of general psychiatry or from you know these various universities mm -hmm. who did these studies etc the pew survey whatever it may have been and i just put them together and i said look at what happens when you start violating the church's teaching on homosexual lifestyle look at what happens mm -hmm. when you uh, uh, you know are um, ignoring church teaching on transgenderism look at what's happening when you ignore the church's teaching on abortion look at what's happening when you ignore the church's teaching and physician assisted suicide i just put out all the stuff that's publicly available in secular peer-reviewed journals or in various uh, you know studies that have been done comprehensive studies have been done mm -hmm. across the board looked at cohabitation the myth of cohabitation oh yes the longer you cohabitate uh, you know the better off your marriage will be absolutely the opposite of course so I just took these various studies and I just put them all together right. in one single and book and that's why people that's gotta get the book and then go to ew10.com <laughs> ew10rc.com to get that book and we're going to book it right now and take a break uh, so much more ahead with father <laughs> spitzer good. and your questions right up to this <laughs> Welcome back to Father Spitzer's Universe. And of course, Advent will be starting very soon and to help you celebrate Advent. We're gonna get some Advent reflections coming your way, meditations for a holy Advent. And they're available through the EW10 Religious Catalog. And of course, don't forget about that. Don't forget about the fact that we will be airing Advent reflections as well. This particular book is a great book. And of course, our topic is vanity from Father's older book, which we're going through, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives. And of course, Father just finished talking a little bit as he comes back into focus uh, about his new book, which we will be featuring 
on Bookmark uh, shortly uh, on uh, on the network, and uh, I've assumed the uh, you could probably find it online already on our, our, our website. If not, I will talk to my Cracker Jack producer, Lee South, and she'll make that happen as she always does. <laughs> so, so let's get to get a, a, some more uh, questions for you. Dear Father Spitzer, yeah. uh, I was talking to my daughter about tattoos and how Jesus said that we should not deform our bodies. She replied that in the Bible there are kings and queens that did not do that, I guess, meaning they did defile their bodies. Are tattoos permissible, uh, Leonore? Well, Leonore, tattoos are permissible. They're not sinful, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, or not declared to be so. Um, I do think, though, that um, from a matter of prudence, mm -hmm. uh, I, I would not do uh, something like that because, of course, one can change one's mind, mm -hmm. and tattoos have a, a great deal of permanence to them, mm -hmm. and it's very, very difficult to get rid of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I would certainly, personally, consider it to be, uh, you know, a, a real uh, deforming of the body. Uh, I, I, but, you know, is it is it immoral? No, it is not immoral. Um, but on the other hand, um, uh, there is uh, something to be said for the fact that if you put that in a very visible place, you, you know, uh, you know, you better hope you, you like it throughout the rest of your right. life because you're pretty much stuck with it. And when it starts getting old and then when it starts getting even sometimes moldy, uh, you know, you mm -hmm. probably don't want it right. anymore. So uh, I would say it, prudence dictates right. this is not a good practice. And by the way, it may you may like calling attention to yourself in that way when you're younger, well, I was gonna ask but you, you right. may not when you're older. Why do you yeah. think, I mean, I remember, you know, in the old days, tattoos were something sailors got, you know, when they probably went yeah. on shore leave and uh, forgot what they were doing yeah. and then woke up the next morning with uh, a tattoo, so to speak. <laughs> but, but it does seem to be that, you know, much more prominence with tattoos and then on top of it, then the piercings, both of those. I mean, what's your thoughts on yeah. that? Boy, it is such a mystery to me why mm -hmm. anybody would want to do either of those things. Mm -hmm. And like I said, in, in the old days, it it was kind of an indication of low class or something. Mm -hmm. But and I don't know. But there's an attraction to it today, and and uh, it's no longer certainly considered that by. Uh, uh, by younger people. I think there is obviously a great deal of concession made uh, in this culture for things that do call attention to yourself. I, I mean, who, you know, I, I can just look back at my generation and say, you know, with, who would have had an Instagram account and you know, when, you know, kind of bragging about I was here at this party or mm -hmm. here's me at the mountain. I mean, people would have thought it was downright silly, at least in my gang of guys, you know. And so, mm -hmm. uh, but it, the feeling is very different today. It's almost like, hey, calling attention to yourself, no big deal. It's, it's not like it's uh, immodest or it's not like You're it's right. almost narcissistic. It's like, uh, hey, you know. Uh, uh, that's just accepted practice. Um, everybody does it. Right. So um, it's uh, you know it's kind I, of I really the, don't. Uh, uh, the I post. It's hard post, for me to understand. Right. It's a little like the post Andy Warhol yeah. syndrome of everybody's going to be famous yeah. for ten minutes. Remember that was yeah. one of the things you said. Yeah. We seem oh, to I live remember. in a world. Remember that? So kind of where we were at. You know. Yeah. You know everybody's yeah, going to be I famous think it for is. ten minutes. I really, you know, I know. 
Unfortunately, uh, I don't realize or at least among is, a certain group yeah, of people. They, they don't realize that <laughs> time. That talk about uh, something that's ephemeral. Uh, 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 that, yeah, that certainly exactly. is. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Here's another question. One more question before we get to the book. Dear Father Spitzer, can you offer me some guidelines on supporting two of my daughters who have difficult mothers-in-law? I find it myself indulging in sinful gossip when advising them how to deal with the issues. I do it to make them feel better, but I'm tired of having to confess the same sin over and over again. It's a matter of saying things like none of her kids has any respect for her. She's not worth your time, Joyce. Yeah, well, Joyce, you know, I, I always find that, you know, most of that really negative gossip is generally bad. Um, you know, it, now sometimes it's not gossip if you're actually trying to, to do something to help a person and your genuine intention is to help them. Mm -hmm. But if it's just, you know, sheer impatience, disgust, or disdain uh, for a human being that's motivating it or even a desire to put them down, you know, in order to make oneself look good, oh, avoid that at all costs because that's destructive gossip and it just does so much harm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you can say some, you know, in exasperation, of course, people can say, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe they did that, you know, um, but, uh, you know, um, I, I avoid even that, and I don't avoid that all the time. Sometimes I'll just blurt it out, you know, like, I can't believe someone did X or Y. But uh, by and large, I really regret it afterwards because it, it's mm. not good. It just, it, it generally negative gossip leads to negative ripples. And, uh, right. you know, it's the old idea of uh, what goes around comes, comes around. around right. I mean, but it's not just simply, you know, the payback for me. The idea is you just really don't want to do harm to somebody you don't right. understand. And I find most of the time when I'm exasperated by somebody's mm. conduct, I don't understand them. I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know their background. I don't know their insecurities. I don't know why they are the way they are. But uh, it doesn't help for me to criticize them. Right. And so um, that's, that's basically it. But I, I do it, and I regret it. Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to stop. But we really have to try to stop because I think that's what our Lord wants us to do. Let me I don't think the Lord was, uh, right. was really involved. Yeah, right. Go ahead. Slide one thing in. Uh, just before we get sure. to the book, because uh, of the topic we deal with. Dear Father Spitzer, and what we just came out of with the election, America has extreme political and cultural divides, and Americans live in different realities. Is this the devil and his demons doing their diabolical deeds? Brian. Well, Brian, I, I mean, divisions happen, right? I mean, our nation has been filled with divisions ever since its inception. The Federalists, the Anti-Federalists, you know, pro-slave, anti-slave. I mean, I could give you a, a hundred examples of the, the divisions that have besieged our country mm -hmm. from day one. Pro-labor, anti-labor, blah, 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 blah. You know, you just go back and every single decade has its, you know, its, its terrible divisions. What I think is going on right now, though, there is a kind of an extreme going on out there uh, and it's basically uh, it's like the world view has changed before you might both groups might have been religious but were maybe uh, pro-labor and pro-management or something but they were both kind of religious they, they still had a similar worldview mm -hmm. today 
the worldview is different. Mm -hmm. That you know, the there there is a difference. Uh, instead of turning to, for example, uh, you know, religion and morality as the basic fulcrum on which to base one's identity, people are now going to ego satisfactions, lists of successes, and lists of people you hang out with. Mm -hmm. That's become the new identity fulcrum, and that's a real dangerous move. In my way of looking at it, it's a move from level three and level four purpose in life down to level one and level two purpose in life and, and once you start doing that mm. uh, and you begin to have a fundamentally you know it's religion versus non-religion mm. it's conventional morality as it's called right mm. but it really means an objective moral system that's non-relativistic they call it conventional morality is non-relativistic moral system versus having a relativistic moral system or no real moral system. I mean, you're talking about such fundamental diversities that, uh, you know, that, that people's identity is disengaged from what is really important, mm -hmm. right? Morals, religion, principles, and ideals, that's important. Right. right, and people say, "Well, I do have ideals. I like the environment, and I keep a really good carbon um, uh, blueprint. You know, I've mm -hmm. got a real, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I recycle everything. I do this and I do that, and and so I got some ideals. I mean, we're talking about here though the ideals that go uh, beyond, you know, just uh, little fundamental activities uh, that you can commit yourself to. What do you really think in those nine areas?" Uh, you know that are right. you know brought to bear of, of the Ten Commandments, right. and and that's really important. You know what what do you really think about objective morals with respect to stealing and cheating mm -hmm. and sexual morality and adultery and killing, uh, e even as it you know touches upon abortion, eugenics, etc. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And so what 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 do you really think? Uh, about moral issues because moral issues do drive ideals. <clears throat> it's not just the uh, having a good telos, having a good end, having a good you know, mm -hmm. goal to shoot for. It's also about the means you are willing to use to get to the goal. And that is the mm -hmm. problem with consequentialistic and utilitarian ethics. It's a problem we have in our society. We've got a lot of people now that have are just autonomous freedom advocates instead of I got to modify my freedom to some principles to some to a god to an authority mm -hmm. you know who you know legitimately I should um, modify my freedom to uphold he's a higher god's a higher authority his law is a higher authority i'm not at liberty quote unquote freedom i'm not at liberty to to just you know, uh, uh, cancel God mm. and to cancel uh, a, a non-relativistic morality. <coughs> I'm going to have to, in some way, <coughs> reconcile myself to the fact that um, that uh, my freedom can't be perfectly autonomous. I can't be a perfect law unto mm -hmm. myself. And and we're, we've got that tension that is so mm -hmm. great. And you know, I'm you know, it's my body. Well, does that mean you can do absolutely anything with it? Like abort another human being's body? Does that really mean that? And so you you, you know, when you put that autonomous freedom thing into the sexual morality, uh, you know, component, mm -hmm. and my body becomes absolute. 
and nobody else counts, doesn't really matter what you do with your body, so long as you've got autonomy over your mm -hmm. body, right? The minute you start saying this, we've got a divide. We've got an ocean dividing us now right. between religion uh, mitigating freedom and religion not mitigating freedom. Morality, uh, non-relativizing morality mitigating freedom, uh, not mitigating freedom, mm. et cetera, et cetera. You go right down the line on these super fundamental issues and at the end of the day, you're gonna see I mean, how are you going to agree with each other? Right. I mean, it's it's just going to be really, really tough. And uh, yeah, you know, like so every time there. I open my mouth, right. yeah. yeah, it's like standing there in, in the real world and talking to a person with virtual reality goggles on and a headset, uh, yeah. you know, and trying oh, yeah. to, underst to understand yeah. what you're seeing when they see it totally different. Yeah, you know, so. absolutely, and uh, that's correct, and. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really tough right now, and it's going to be a lot of work mm -hmm. uh, to bring people around. But I'll tell you one thing, the emptiness, loneliness, alienation, and dread that's going to follow right. upon the, um, the disregard for uh, non-relativistic morality and religion, it's going to come. Right. I mean, Mircea Eliade was almost a prophet. You know, he's the great you know, historian of religion. He just said, non-religious man will pay the price in the long run. They will be so alienated from themselves that they will not know whence they come or where they are going. And mm. from that, they, in the perfect state of alienation, will right. either drift back to, to uh, God or they will destroy themselves right. and one another. I think there is, you know, we can just see the whole thing, the loss of the sacred. Right. Um, is a terrible thing indeed. Absolutely. Let's jump uh, to page 301, mm -hmm. part one, the deadly sins. <laughs> we were talking about vanity in okay. a third way. We kind of talked a little bit oh about boy, this, about the idea what vanity undermines willing adherents to immerse themselves in negative emotions that you call the comparison game. And I remember years ago when I was, mm -hmm. uh, there was a thing called Desiderata, was a very popular poem out there. But the one yeah. thing it always said in there that yeah. made sense was, don't compare yourself against to others. There's always some lesser and some greater. Yeah. But that's what this leads yeah. to, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think this is, we are the ultimate society of the comparison game. Mm -hmm. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power, less power, more prestige, less prestige, more popularity, less popularity, more intelligence, less intelligence, more athleticism, less athleticism, more good looks, less good looks, more promotions, less promotions, you name it, we, we, we can put the better house, worse house. I mean, we are the comparison game culture. And the minute you go for that, you know, as Christopher Lash says, the next step is the culture of narcissism. Mm -hmm. What's going to stop it? We don't have any idea, ideal that's going to stop it. We don't have any morals that are going to stop it. We don't have any religion that's going to stop it. We actually don't even have any disgust within us anymore from our conscience because we don't pay any attention to our conscience. we got to get at the top of the mm -hmm. comparison game. Otherwise, we feel alienated from ourselves. But ultimately, without God, you'll really feel alienated from yourself. 
yourself. It's go back to, to God, go back to morality, uh, as I've said. And if you don't, mm -hmm. uh, the, the payment of the price is right. cultural alienation. It's not just cultural narcissism. Now, that's where we kind of destroy one another in our selfishness. Mm -hmm. It's cultural self-alienation because it's going to, what I said, come, what goes around, comes around. It's going to come right back uh, to us in the form of dread, emptiness, loneliness, alienation on a cosmic level. We're going to be so out there in the blackness, so out there in the loneliness, so out there in the emptiness. Without God, we are just a big nothing. Mm -hmm. When are we going to recognize that we are merely, uh, you know, have substance through his good graces and through his love. You don't recognize that love. You turn off that spigot of his mm -hmm. love by your own actions and, and, and will. I'm telling you, this, this is the worst thing you can do. You turn off your own substance. Mm -hmm. There's going to be nothing left of you. And one day you're going to be shaven in the mirror. And as you're looking at yourself, you're going to see nothing coming back at you. And the emptiness inside your stomach is going to be a pit, you know, of just pure emptiness there. And at the end of the day, what are you going to do without God to stabilize you? What are you going to do without God to give you substance? What are you going to do without God to give you some ultimate fulfillment, some ultimate dignity? You think it's going to rest on you? You're looking at your empty self in the mirror, and what are you saying to yourself? Heck no, I'm dead. And that's why we're going to get the culture of self-alienation. Culture of narcissism, Hey, ultimately, it'll come down to the culture of self-alienation. There's no stopping it. And that's when the implosion right. will begin. Because we'll take it out on one another Absolutely. if we don't take it out on ourselves first. Right, like you said. Uh, jumping to 302, you say before leaving this topic yeah. about vanity, we want to consider one final dimension of vanity's power, the power of delusion. Now, you talked a little bit about various characters, and you mm -hmm. talked a little bit about Sunset Boulevard and that, that whole idea yeah. uh, and being deluded like that. Well, let's talk about it in, in the terms of, yeah. for the average person, what would be a, rather than uh, Norma Desmond uh, fading uh, silent screen yeah. uh, siren uh, and her blindness to the fact that the world sure. has moved on beyond her, what does that do, what, what for the average person, how would they relate to that idea of, of that delusion, do you think? Oh, I remember one person actually telling me, hey, you know, this is my fourth, uh, you know, facial job, you know, uh, mm -hmm. surgery, uh, you know, and I've, uh, you know, four facials, what, what are we dealing with here? I mean, when you're 75, you're 75, you know, and, and uh, you're not going to have the face of a 20-year-old, no matter what a doctor tells you. It's just not going to happen. But, of course, you, you, you want to think, well, gee, I'm just like I, I always was, mm -hmm. or, you know, the whole idea of, you know, you see these older guys driving their Ferraris. Yes, you know, right, right. Uh, you know, zooming around the, the you know, the, the, you know, the, the parking lot basically in in a four hundred thousand dollar vehicle, and you go, mm. well, well, why is that? You know, <laughs> I know why, mm. because of course we we want to perpetuate the myth. Uh, we 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 really do want that we are under the uh, you know illusion that if we kind of dress the part, have the car which is the part, et cetera, we are the part, which right. we're not. It's just a part, and, and we're not there anymore. And, and so the, the delusion thing, you know, the, the whole person, right. of, I can handle this job. Uh, like I, I was just saying to somebody the other day, oh, 70 is the new 40. Yeah, you right. know, I can get on a plane and travel, you know, 50 times a year just like I used to. 
No, I can't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I, already, I, you know, right. I feel the crank, you know, and getting right. into that plane, going through the security line. Uh, you know, it's different. You know, it's, you, right. you know, you're not a 50 timer. You know, I mean, right. uh, absolutely. So, yeah, but the idea, yeah, yeah. Do you think some yeah, of that with, with, with this kind of youth kind of focus is because people either have lost hope in the eternal? Or, uh, you know, or they think there's nothing, and so they think, uh, you know, they, they want to stay young because they, they fear death one way or the other. Not that most of us don't fear death. Yeah, I, I think there's always, of course, the pull of people's compliments, you know, mm -hmm. and when you're younger and you have beauty or handsomeness or whatever, and people say, oh, you know, uh, very handsome or something, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, you love that compliment. I, so I think part of it is just getting the accolade. Mm -hmm. But the second thing I, I do think is there is more uh, kind of nihilism in our culture today than there mm -hmm. used to be uh, because of irreligiosity. I think there's also, uh, you know, they don't have those uh, more uh, stable uh, values and ideals, uh, you know, to shoot for something beyond the self. Mm -hmm. It's not about myself. It's about doing the good beyond myself, that stabilizing value, well, once that weakens, of course, all there is left is yourself. And that, of course, as I said, it's not just, um, you know, narcissism. It, mm -hmm. it actually becomes a kind of nihilism, uh, at least a tacit uh, nihilism uh, that's there. And, and uh, you know, right. eventually, if there's nothing else out there, I got to keep my looks. I got to at least get a few of those accolades I once got, right. you know. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, I used to... Uh, you know, really have uh, some some really great experiences. Well, I can't have that. Maybe I'll go out and get a Chateau de Rothschild 1961. <laughs> you know, I don't know whatever it is. You know, right, some you know five thousand dollar bottle of wine. That'll make me feel better. I'm enjoying the best. You know, Impressed and, my and of course the whole right, time you're man, just pitch. Man. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. And you think yep. you talk about that exactly. whole idea of. Of Gen Xers and Millennials becoming pr progressively more superficial, and that's what so much of it is. It's really this superficiality. Yeah. You know, like you talk about the idea of going on, you know, Facebook or Snapchat and, and sitting there and uh, turning the filters up, you know, to to make yourself into yeah. a, what looks like more like an anime uh -huh. character than a real person. You know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. Uh -huh. But unfortunately, it's not just turning up the the filters. Then the person, if the younger person, especially again without the developed frontal cortex, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, is looking at herself and with the filters and going, I like that self better than I'm going for the surgery. And they're having uh -huh. their first facial surgeries at 14, 15, 16 years old, quote unquote, to improve themselves so that they can look more like the filter. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are in a real state when, and of course, if they're not getting satisfaction results they're having suicidal feelings mm -hmm. I'm telling you it's absolutely true this is what's going on and you can see it in the suicide statistics of young people pre-covid going up 56 percent in 10 years pre-covid uh, for suicides among young people that would be to say un the under 20 group and then of course depression anxiety levels going up 63 percent in 10 years pre-covid and the homicide level going up 23 percent right. in 10 years pre-covid all i can tell you there's something very very strange going on here it's Absolutely. not good it's very you know it's terribly 
Uh, you can, the handwriting's on the wall. Mm -hmm. We need God. We need morality. We need, you know, stable ideals like a contributive ideal of, of trying to make a difference beyond ourselves, not just to ourselves. All these things are really, we got to regain them or else I think we're going to have the culture of self-alienation, right. which will become the culture of tacit nihilism. Absolutely. Very well. Thank you so much, Father. If you'd give us your blessing on the way out the door, that would be great. Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all consolation, the Lord of wisdom, the Lord who is self-giving love par excellence, send his spirit of that same love upon you to know how much, so that you might know how much he loves you, how much he holds out for you, and to give you the desire to affirm the values and the morals that he has given us, to teach that to others, to prevent this culture of alienation from occurring in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father Spitzer. As always, be well. We shall see you next time and hopefully we'll see you as well. Don't forget, as always, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, including his latest book. Next week, we'll continue talking about vanity. And our EWTN bookmark of this week is with the one and only Raymond Arroyo, the wise men who found Christmas, a great family book and a great Christmas book gift as well. And of course, Raymond, Making the Rounds, will be on discussing his book and much more with our own Father Mitch on EWTN Live and at sharing the facts behind the fables of the wise men's worship of our Lord. That's this week on EWTN Live. So there's a lot there to look forward to as we move towards Thanksgiving and Advent. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time right here in Father Spitzer's universe. Be well.